Hello again, or hello for the first time if you're new to Unknown Friends. This is my weekly book review podcast, and I'm Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions. In case you don't know, let me just explain that Kitty Wham Productions is my company and website where I blog regularly as well as publish my original plays and skits written especially for performance in churches, schools, homeschool co-ops, and Christian theaters. But besides being a writer and a writing teacher, I'm also a reader. And since I believe that thoughtfully reading and then discussing books is a fantastic way to develop both the mind and the heart, I started this podcast to encourage that process of reading and thinking and sharing. So what you're listening to today is my 12th episode. For some reason, I wanted to say dozenth episode, but I suppose that's a fake word. Actually, edit, I went and looked this up and dozenth is a real word. I just, I felt the need to insert that. Sorry, as you were. Be sure to stay tuned to the very end of today's episode for a minor announcement. Nothing huge, please don't get your hopes up, but just a very small surprise I will be sharing at the end. So today I am reviewing a book written over a century ago by the author Edith Wharton, who is famous for such works as The Age of Innocence and Ethan Frome. And today we're looking at her novel, The House of Mirth, published in 1905. First, a quick introduction to Edith Wharton herself. She was born during the Civil War in 1862, and she died shortly before World War II in 1937. She was born Edith Jones, and her father George Jones was part of a very wealthy family living in New York City. Funny thing, the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, so there are a couple of explanations as to where that phrase came from. There was a a comic strip by that name in the early 1900s, but it is speculated that the phrase could have originated earlier from this wealthy Jones family, Edith's father's family, and how others uh, sometimes tried to imitate their way of life. Anyway, be that as it may, Edith grew up uh, in financial security, but there were family problems. In particular, she did not have a good relationship with her mother at all, and that resurfaced throughout her life and her works. Um, It was obviously something that that shaped her and scarred her. She was, however, well-educated, though in some ways largely self-educated. Her family traveled quite a lot in Europe, and Edith learned French and German and Italian. She read voraciously as she was growing up, although her mother told her, and she did obey this, that she was not allowed to read novels until she was married. Anyway, Edith did start writing at a young age. Before she was even a teenager, she was writing poetry and translating poetry as well. Her first piece of work ever published was a translation of a German poem when she was just 15. And when she was only 11, she even started trying to write a novel. I don't know 
how she approached writing a novel when she hadn't read any, but she she tentatively showed the beginning of her novel to her mother, and this gives you a glimpse of their relationship. So the opening lines of the novel she'd started writing were these. "'Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Brown?' said Mrs. Tompkins. "'If only I had known you were going to call, I should have tidied up the drawing room.'" And Edith's mother read this, and all she said was, drawing rooms are always tidy. That's it. As you might imagine, Edith stopped trying to write novels for a while. But she didn't stop all writing. She focused mostly on poetry for a while, and got several more poems published throughout her teens, She does not seem to have written much prose, or at least it wasn't published until a little later. Her first um, short story was published when she was 29, and her first novel not until she was 40. But in the meantime, in 1885, at age 23, she got married, and she and her husband traveled a great deal. But he unfortunately suffered from depression, and this just worsened as years went by until Edith finally divorced him in 1913, after they'd been married almost 30 years. By this time, she had already published several novels, including The House of Mirth, and this is worth noting, she she was also a designer, so interior design and garden design, and she wrote several books on this topic throughout her life as well. But anyway, in 1911, shortly before getting divorced, she moved to France, where she lived for the rest of her life. She uh, lived in Paris all through World War I, and she worked hard for the French war effort. She raised funds, and sheltered refugees, helped open hospitals, and she even visited the front lines several times. And then after the war in 1920, she published what might be her most famous novel, The Age of Innocence, uh, for which she received, um, and actually was the first woman ever to receive, the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1921. The rest of her life, like I said, she spent in France, She was continuing to write several more novels, uh, some short story collections, and also her autobiography, which was published just three years before her death from a stroke in 1937 at age 75. So that gives you an overview of Edith Wharton's life, and now let's turn to this novel, one of her earliest, The House of Mirth. She derived the title from a verse in Ecclesiastes, verse 4 of chapter 7, which reads, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And I think that pretty well indicates the tone of the whole novel. The story is set in a very frivolous world, so there is some humor, some uh, satire, But at its core, the book is a scathing critique of the society it portrays. Wharton relies heavily on irony, and she unmasks the hypocrisy of society, as well as the tragic way lives are wasted in pursuit of society's acceptance. 
So specifically, she's looking at the aristocracy centered in New York in the Gilded Age in the late 1800s, which is the community she herself grew up in. She exposes the double standard by which people judge one another in that society, supposedly condemning uh, immorality and impropriety unless the individual in question is wealthy enough or well-connected enough to get by. And then in the middle of this society, in Wharton's novel, is our heroine, Miss Lily Bart. So Lily grew up in luxury and refinement, but she lost her parents and her family's wealth when she was 20 years old. And since then, she's been under the protection of her wealthy but uh, somewhat stingy aunt. When the novel opens, Lily is now 29 Still unmarried, but realizing that it's about time she really needs to find a good match if she hopes to remain in the aristocratic lifestyle to which she is accustomed. Lily is very beautiful still at almost 30 years old, and at the beginning of the story, she has her sights set on a Mr. Percy Grice, who is rich, but Lily admits to herself she does not find him very interesting. He he is conservative and rather austere, and she is lively enough that she has a hard time imagining herself uh, really happy if she were to marry someone as stoic and reserved as Mr. Grice. In contrast, she likes a young lawyer she's known for several years, Lawrence Selden, but he, while able to mingle with aristocratic society, he is really in a class beneath the people Lily associates with. And so she believes it would be impossible for her to ever marry him because she could not bring herself to give up the luxuries she's used to. She abhors what she calls dinginess, which is, is something she learned from her mother. And this aversion is a deep motivation that keeps Lily striving for a place in high society, even though she does dislike certain aspects of the aristocracy. But the plot moves forward. She's So she's hesitant about Mr. Grice, and then financial difficulties press in on her due to gambling debts she accumulates. And she then seeks help from Mr. Gus Trenner, the husband of one of her good friends. And then that situation turns sour. And she ends up owing him a lot of money and estranging herself from her friend. So then Lily accepts an offer of help from another friend, uh, Mrs. Bertha Dorset. But that does not end well either. And it's it's just this gradual but unstoppable descent into more and more trouble as the story progresses. Now, there are highs as well as lows. Lily gets herself out of many of the plights she finds herself in, but if that verse from Ecclesiastes hasn't already given it away, I'll try to make it explicit now. Lily lives in the house of mirth, the house of fools. While in many ways, she is just a victim of the foolish people around her, yet she chooses to dwell among them. And as long as she stays there, it's 
really impossible for things to end well. Because we're not talking fools in the sense of just silly people. We're talking the Ecclesiastes sense of fool. Someone who scorns wisdom and integrity. Someone who wastes their life and draws as many others into their downward spiral as possible. Yeah, so in other words, this is not a particularly cheerful book. <laughs> it it has moments of light, moments of hope, but its central purpose is to sober and challenge its readers. So so let's dig into this a little. What what more specifically are the novel's insights? I said that it's a critique of upper-crust New York society in the Gilded Age, so let's take a closer look at that society. There were a few primary factors involved in being accepted into this aristocratic society. The main two were wealth and family. Really, wealth is number one, and long-established wealthy families were the core of the aristocracy. And Late in the 19th century, you were starting to see some new wealthy families starting to become established, although that took some getting used to. At first, new wealth was looked down upon, but eventually the fact of wealth itself took precedence over family connections or family history. So the older families might still uh, raise their eyebrows at the rich newcomers, but the new arrivals were eventually accepted into aristocratic circles. So your financial circumstances and your family connections were the main things that could establish your respectability. But then there was a third thing, which, as you might expect, involved your own behavior. So there were certain social conventions, as well as just a, a basic standard of moral integrity that had to be maintained or you could disgrace yourself and forfeit your position in society. That said, however, family and finances typically trump everything else. So with personal integrity, there's pretty flexible criteria for you to be accepted in society. Depending on your connections and your financial status, immoral or otherwise socially inappropriate behavior can be overlooked if you play your cards right and if public opinion is in your favor. Now, obviously, this is such folly, right? People are judged on the basis of their dollars in the bank or, or who their mother was instead of on the basis of their own actions. That is so not right. And Edith Wharton exposes how wrong that is. The aristocracy is this um, absurd kind of machine where those on top with the most wealth and status can essentially tell whatever stories they want about themselves and everyone else. They can twist the truth and manipulate people to believe pretty much anything. And so they can conceal their own depravity and if they so desire, they can destroy the reputation of people, even people with true integrity, simply because they themselves have this position of respect on the basis of their money or their connections. And, you know, while 
sure, the details are are different today. We do still see this happening, right? The people who get to tell the stories rule society. They can paint things however it serves them best and govern public opinion with lies. So while in one sense things have changed, in a lot of ways they haven't. And in that sense, Edith Wharton's message about society's folly is completely relevant today. But she offers insights on a more personal level as well. And so I want to focus for just a few minutes on the person of Lily Bart herself, the heroine of The House of Mirth. She is a fascinating character. I I think she's very believably portrayed. She has conflicting impulses and ideas inside her, as real people do, and yet she acts consistently with her beliefs, as people do. As I mentioned before, she hates what she calls dinginess, and that is a driving force in her life, pushing her to avoid poverty and obscurity at all costs. And yet, maybe not at all costs. Maybe this abhorrence of dinginess is not the very deepest driving force for Lily. Because multiple times throughout the story, she has opportunities to grasp what she desires. There are multiple uh, wealthy men she could marry if she wanted, and that would secure her against a life of dinginess. But in some cases, a desire for someone more compatible steers her away from the chance, or in others, uh, moral qualms stand in her way. So while she is pursuing acceptance in society, at the same time, she has an independent side, an underlying desire for freedom from what she knows is society's game. And not only that, but Lily has moral principles which she will not break, and that is a crucial thing to keep in mind. Unlike much of the aristocratic society in which she moves, she is not really willing to play dirty. Now, I say that, and yet Lily is not entirely untainted by her manipulative surroundings. She will tell little lies and portray herself in, you know, certain convenient lights in order to accomplish what she wants. Um, but she she has clear lines she won't cross. She certainly avoids doing anything that will harm someone else, which is more than can be said for most of her peers. She does repeatedly allow herself to drift into compromising positions, but she never actually compromises her principles. And Consider this, a lily is a symbol of purity, right? And I do think Edith Wharton intends to present Miss Lily Bart as, at least in some senses, a symbol of purity, a young woman who is pretty much innocent and is taken advantage of by the society around her. Now, we could debate what it really means to be innocent, but Lily is at least innocent of the vast majority of wrongs that other people attribute to her throughout the story. So at least in that sense, she represents a kind of purity. Now, I say all this 
But I want to add one caveat. One of Lily's flaws is that she is not consistently honest with herself. Edith Wharton describes there being two Lilies, uh, one hidden in a, in a kind of prison cell deep inside the other, and Lily herself doesn't know how to reconcile the two. She's drawn in multiple directions. She feels the tug of, of wealth and a comfortable lifestyle, as well as the possibility of freedom and love, um, and the necessity to maintain her personal integrity. But there's no way for her to navigate life and fulfill all of these. So eventually, she will have to choose. But in the meantime, she delays. And this, I think, is, is a key part of her downfall. When she finds a temporary solution to some of her difficulties, she puts off figuring out a permanent solution and prefers to just uh, enjoy things while they're pleasant. Does she really believe the temporary solution is permanent? Or does she know it will only last so long, but she chooses to ignore impending problems? Well, <laughs> uh, it's, it's sometimes a fine line between what we know and what we believe and what we think we believe. But here is a quotation from the novel which, which illustrates what I'm talking about. The fact that her immediate anxieties were relieved did not blind her to a possibility of their recurrence. It merely gave her enough buoyancy to rise once more above her doubts and feel a renewed faith in her beauty, her power, and her general fitness to attract a brilliant destiny. It could not be that one conscious of such aptitudes for mastery and enjoyment was doomed to a perpetuity of failure, and her mistakes looked easily reparable in the light of her restored self-confidence. So, does she lie to herself? Mm, not exactly, but she welcomes temporary relief from her troubles and she allows that relief to, to renew her faith in herself. She delays consequences as often and as long as possible, and lets herself imagine that the consequences won't be as bad in the end as she fears. That is a kind of self-deception in my book, and it compounds Lily's difficulties in the story. It's a tricky question, though. How guilty or guiltless is Lily in this novel? It depends in part on how you interpret the ending, which I don't want to spoil for you, and obviously it depends on your worldview as well. I think Lily is certainly caught in a, in a corrupt society, and yet she keeps herself apart from much of its corruption, hence the name Lily, the symbol of innocence. But I would say she's still implicated. She embraces many of the values and images of the society around her. And while those have a hold of her, I don't think she can be regarded as entirely innocent. But you should read the book yourself and see what you think of Lily and her story. 
Personally, I wouldn't mark the House of Mirth as one of my top recommendations ever, but I enjoyed reading it, and Edith Wharton has some valuable insights. I would say the book poses worthwhile questions, and through the character of Lily, it explores various complexities and consequences of the life she chooses to live, but I came away from the story feeling that it had not offered satisfying conclusions. It's it's hard to, to get into that very deeply in a book review without giving away spoilers, but at least I, I hope my discussion today has given you a taste for what this novel is about, and if you do decide to take the time to read it, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on the, the society depicted and Lily's character and also the novel's ending, whether you think Edith Wharton offers uh, viable solutions to the problems she raises. In any case, thank you so much for listening today, and don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast if you have a moment. I will be back next week in episode 13 with a new favorite of mine, Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. This was my first Elizabeth Gaskell read, and I loved it, so I am very excited to review that novel, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Now, lastly, quick announcement. As promised at the start of today's episode, next Monday, July 6th, is the birthday of my company, Kitty Wayne Productions. It'll be the fifth anniversary from when I officially started the company. And so in celebration of that, I plan to release just a short bonus episode on Monday. It won't be a book review, but I'm not going to tell you what it will be. Just a little surprise, which I hope you enjoy. So check in Monday for that little bonus episode, and then I will be back on Wednesday with my usual weekly book review featuring Elizabeth Gaskell's Wives and Daughters. I'll see you then.